hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing The Bombard Story by Dr. Alain Bombard, translated by Brian Connell, and we're on Chapter 7. Chapter 7, Tangier Interlude As soon as we had disembarked, I sent off a telegram asking for replacements of the equipment we had lost. The reply was soon back. Jean Ferrier on way to Palmer. This meant that Jean was probably already there, so we could relax for a day or two while we awaited his arrival in Ciudadella. On Thursday morning, I set off early for a long day's underwater fishing. I was swimming around with Fernando, the local champion at this sport, when a small boy arrived with a message that two Frenchmen had arrived with news of my wife and were asking for me. Oh, that must be Jean. He's made good time, I thought. Mounting a borrowed bicycle, I paddled for three miles under the torrid sun, only to find when I got to the port that the two men were strangers who had got hold of Jack's logbook and were copying it out in the most impudent fashion. I made an effort to be polite to them and try to give them a full account of our experiences, but they already knew most of the details, having questioned the harbour master and read through the logbook. They interrogated me the whole morning and then followed me to the house of friends who had invited Jack and myself to lunch, where they took photographs of us without so much as a buy or leave. I learnt that they did not even know Jeanette's address, but they seemed in no way abashed and finally took off for Palmer, leaving us all open-mouthed. We decided there and then that we would never put ourselves out again. On Friday morning, the same thing happened. Two more Frenchmen arrived and demanded to see us. We went into hiding, only to be discovered an hour later by Jean Ferrier and Sanchez, the French consul and Mahon, both breathless, sweating and furious, convinced that we must have had a touch of the sun and should be locked up out of harm's way. The news they brought was bad. The expedition sponsor declined to help us any further, and those newspapers which had never taken us seriously had announced, after meeting with the city Farouche, that the Bombard expedition had failed. We had to get to the bottom of it. Leaving Jack in Menorca, I decided to go to Paris via Mallorca. After receiving every help from Monsieur de Fremenville, the French consul, I left on Monday, 23rd June. It was a hair-raising journey. I picked up a car in Valencia at 8 o'clock in the morning, was in Madrid by 12.30, at San Sebastian by 7 in the evening, and in Poitiers at 6 o'clock the next morning. Something of a record in itself. In Paris, the battle started. All I wanted was enough new equipment to make us ready for sea again, but no one took us seriously anymore. The air was thick with rumours of other expeditions. Someone was going to try paddling from San Sebastian to Dublin in a canoe, and another enthusiast had thought up the idea of crossing the channel in a paddle boat. Jack and I were lumped together in the same category. We were laughed at by everyone, and the people who had built the dinghy, even though they had not completely lost confidence, hesitated to assist us further. Our patron, subdued by specialists who contended that they had been right all the time, refused to put up another penny under the pretext of not wishing to be an accessory to my suicide. I could not make him realise that all he was doing was to diminish our margin of security as we intended to go on in any case. What had gone wrong? Why was everyone trying to stop the expedition? It was no easy thing to track down. It was clear that a certain number of people had expected us to be driven onto the Italian coast in a few days, and now that there was a reasonable possibility of our success, they were getting worried. 
For my part, I was not out to prove the efficacy of certain life-saving equipment, but in particular to show that however insufficient such equipment might be, the castaway still had a chance of saving his skin. Certain parties started to interest themselves in the affair, but I could only guess at their influence until our arrival in Tangier, when it became fully apparent. The whole expedition was in danger, although after long drawn-out discussions, I did manage to get a few spares. I left for Palma de Mallorca, exhausted and demoralised, on Sunday, 29th of June. Jack was to load the heretic on board the ship, Chuadadella, and join me there, so that we could then start off again in an attempt to get as near as possible to the Straits of Gibraltar. If we were held up for any reason, we would, if necessary, take ship as far as Tangier. Once there, people could think what they liked, but it would be difficult to stop us embarking on our Atlantic adventure. My chief fear was that means would be found to have my sailing license cancelled, which really would mean the end of the expedition. I did not so much mind the idea of people saying he has not been able to carry out his experiment, but I guessed that they would put it another way. There must be something wrong with his theories, or he would have been able to prove them by now. I really think it was fear of this second argument which gave me the determination to carry on. Our spares arrived by plane, a mast, two lee boards, a compass and a few handbooks. They caused us endless trouble with the customs and without the help of Monsieur de Fremenville I think we would still be arguing. Finally, they were brought along to the yacht club which generously offered us hospitality and by the next Sunday morning all was ready. Jack had decided to leave late at night in order to take advantage of the land wind to carry us out into the bay. For once, we made up our minds to leave harbour under our own power. Our departure was much more informal than the first from Monaco. Jack and I were at the oars, although a small launch from the club kept us company for a little way. A breeze sprang up from the east. It was goodbye to Mallorca. We were on our way again, bound for Africa or the Spanish coast, depending on the wind. This lap was a pleasure cruise. On the Monday morning, not far off the island, I caught some big mullet, and the food supply was assured. It was a magnificent day. The wind was driving us along in a splendid fashion, and Jack had high hopes of making Alicante on the southeast coast of Spain, whence we intended to hug the coast as far as Malaga. But whatever happened, we had decided that if the wind should drop, we should take advantage of the first opportunity to ship the heretic and ourselves to Tangier. The sooner we passed the columns of Hercules and reached the Atlantic, the better. The Mediterranean was beginning to give us claustrophobia and we needed the broad ocean to ensure the success of the expedition. The weather was getting distinctly hot. I swam every day, but Jack preferred to remain in the boat. During the evening, Mallorca slowly disappeared from sight and we set course to pass as far as possible to the south of Ibiza. On Tuesday morning, we could see its coast on the starboard bow. The wind continued favourable, and underwater fishing provided us with a positive feast of fish, while schools of porpoises paid us frequent visits. At about four o'clock, we realised with some anxiety that we were making very little headway in spite of the favourable wind. A contrary current was holding us back. If the wind had turned foul, we would have been thrown back to Mallorca, so we decided to make for land and beach the heretic at the first convenient place. We got out the oars again, but it was hard work, and we were not offshore until nearly nightfall. 
The sea was studded with rocks and reefs, but with the last gleams of daylight we found an enchanting little bay of crystal clear water and pulled the heretic ashore. We were about 15 miles from the capital of the island, but it was a warm, starlit night and we looked forward with pleasure to sleeping out with steady earth under us. We had now given up the idea of beating further round the Mediterranean and had made up our minds to take the first available ship. A charming farmer invited us to drink some wine with him. It was acid and proved a powerful purgative, but his company was unique. He was completely ignorant of what was going on in the world and had never even heard of Truman, Stalin or Eisenhower. We could hardly believe that such a thoroughly self-sufficient person still existed in the world. Stretched out on our couch of pine needles under the stars, it seemed as if we were on another planet. The next morning, Jack asked me to catch some more fish. I dived in and was back almost immediately with a handsome bass. We spent the whole of Thursday and Friday in idyllic inactivity, surrounded by high red cliffs and exploring a seabed as multicoloured as a coral atoll, scintillating with the reflection of hundreds of fish catching the sun's rays. It came almost as a disappointment on the Saturday, when at six o'clock in the morning, the wind sprang up from a direction which should take us to the port of Ibiza. As we rode out, it seemed almost a sacrilege to break the mirror-like surface of the lovely little bay, to leave such a haven of peace for the fury of the open sea. Once out of its shelter, we had to pull on the oars a good bit harder, as the wind had died down now, and by midday it had veered in the wrong direction, and we had to seek shelter again in the little bay of Escana, near an islet called Tagomango. We were developing quite a taste for these unscheduled calls, and with his usual insouciance, Jack was starting to ask why we ever needed to put to sea again. On the evening of the 12th July, we were accosted by two civil guards, one of whom caressed his rifle and said, You are forbidden to land except at a port. You must put to sea again immediately. We can't. The wind is wrong, I replied. That is nothing to do with us, he said, red with anger. Very well, gentlemen. Come out with us. You will see. That struck home, and these two representatives of the universal police mind found nothing more to say. After consultation with their headquarters, they gave us permission to wait for a favourable wind. The next morning, I was looking out for lunch, when my submarine horizon was transformed by the sight of a magnificent pair of legs. They belonged to Manuela, the eldest of three Chilean sisters, and the swim ended by us becoming five and lunching off a huge watermelon. Manuela had brought with her a copy of Malame, which I leafed through. These lines caught my eye. I will start. Steamer balancing your masts. Heave anchor to reach a nature exotic. Inoue, devastated by my cruel hopes, still believes in the handkerchief's final adieu. And perhaps the masts, inviting tempests, are of those which a wind bends over shipwrecks, lost, without masts, without masts or fertile isle. But oh, my heart listened to the sailor's song. The weather was changing again, and the tops of the trees were leaning towards the west. The wind had returned, so we left, and the same day entered the harbour of Ibiza, where the yacht club received us with typical Spanish hospitality. Our Mediterranean voyage was nearly over. On the Friday, we embarked on the Ciudad de Ibiza, which took us as far as Alicante, and there, by emptying our pockets, 
we just managed to pay our fares as deck passengers without food on the Monte Biscagui to Cuta. Regarded at first with some suspicion, we were marvellously treated by the crew, and the passengers promised to take me to a concert if ever I should pass through Bilbao. The first engineer showed us round all the ports of call, and we made great friends with the radio operator, who, nevertheless, confided to us in his cups one day that he considered us un poco locos, a little crazy. The captain offered me a replacement for my tattered shirt, and the radio operator gave Jack a pair of shoes. One of the stewards saw to it that we did not go hungry. This, I think, would be a good place in which to sum up the first part of our experiment. First of all, the problem of drink. From the 25th to the 28th of May, we drank seawater, for four days in my case and three in Jack's. During this period, our urine was perfectly normal, and we had no sensation of thirst, but it should be remembered that it is essential not to wait for dehydration before drinking seawater. We always found that a good remedy for any feeling of thirst, especially when our faces were in the sun, was to cover them with a towel or a piece of cloth soaked in seawater. Two days on sea perch then provided us with food and drink, but care had to be taken not to compensate too quickly for our fast. Six more days of seawater followed, bringing us to the safety limit, and then two more days of fish, without any internal complications. In other words, out of 14 days we drank fish juice for four and seawater for ten. By interrupting the consumption of seawater, we were able to double what I considered the safety limit. Food. The symptoms of hunger were these. Cramp-like pains extending to the shoulders during the first part and part of the second day. On the third day these pains ceased and were followed by somnolence and a permanent sensation of fatigue. To reduce the need for food, it is essential to induce an effect of physical hibernation by leading a vegetative existence. Our blood pressure hardly varied, but in this respect I do not think the experiment lasted long enough for concrete results. There was considerable danger of ophthalmia and conjunctivitis due to the reflection of the sun on the sea. I noticed none of the effects normally associated with the consumption of seawater, and neither Jack nor I vomited or had diarrhoea. On the contrary, we were subject to persistent constipation, without pain, coating of the tongue or mucous membranes or bad breath, and this lasted 12 days. However, we both suffered continuously from wind. We had no lipothymy or fainting spells, and although our skins were dry from the third day onwards, there was no sign of petechia, red patches on the skin. There was no edema of the ankles, although for two days my face swelled up as is shown in the film I took. Cuts were slow to heal and had a distinct tendency to turn septic. On the fifth day, I developed an abscess of the first lower molar on the right side, which developed in the usual way. After it had passed, it left a hardening and generalized pain. There was slight drying of the mucous membranes, especially the lips, but only at the start. I do not propose to enter here into further details, but I would like to say a few words about my equipment and my companion. The dinghy did all that I expected of it. In spite of heavy seas, it proved completely seaworthy at all times. Only two items needed strengthening, the mast and the housing of the leeboards. Jack was the perfect crew. In sailing from Monaco to the Spanish coast, he was responsible for a tour de force which many people with knowledge of the sea considered impossible. Most of them expected us to turn up in Corsica or Sicily. As a companion, he was active, 
brave and unselfish. He always chose the uncomfortable jobs and places for himself and was always ready to cope with emergencies. He never complained and never seemed more pessimistic than the situation appeared to warrant. He proved that it was possible to determine a position from a completely rudimentary craft, never lost confidence, and was the ideal companion for such an adventure. Jack Palmer would have remained with me and ever been the driving force if only I had foreseen that too long an interval on land would lead to his discouragement and final defection. He brought me as far as Tangier, the stepping stone for my great Atlantic adventure. Without him, I would never have got there. When we reached Cuta on a public holiday, no one was at work, and the captain refused to go on and drop us in the Bay of Tangier, declining to listen to our arguments. In the end, the radio operator intervened on our behalf, and the captain agreed to take us on to Tangier, providing we obtained triple authorization from the police, customs, and port authorities. It was 10.30 in the morning, and the ship was due to leave at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. As we went ashore, we heard the captain guffawing, well, they won't get that. Three passes from three different offices on a holiday? They won't be bothering me again. By 12.30, we had got them all. In response to our verbal request, the Spanish authorities carried out all the formalities, and the harbour master had an order entered in the log of the Monte Biscagni for us to be dropped off Tangier. In fact, we did not leave until nine o'clock, but about half an hour later, with the heretic already inflated on deck, we were hoisted over the side by a crane. The captain had considerable doubts about our fate, telling us that he would have thought twice about launching one of the ship's boats. There was a high wind, such as always churns up the water of the straits into choppy waves and flying spume. The Monte Biscagni gave us a last salute on her siren, and we were left in the dark to make for the lights of the international city. There, I was to find many true and generous friends, but also redoubtable enemies who were to separate me from my companion. We arrived in Tangier at midnight and found our way through the murk to the yacht club. At long last, our Mediterranean journey was over. Tangier is a large and handsome town where national prejudices have long since lost all significance. When I called at the French consulate the next morning to pick up my mail, Monsieur Bergeret, the vice-consul, helped me to get a plane ticket to Paris, payable on arrival, and then Monsieur Mougenot advanced me the money to pay for it. The people at the consulate were also good enough to lend me enough money to buy a decent suit of clothes and book in at a hotel. On Monday the 28th of July, I left for Paris, which was, alas, a fatal error on my part, as far as Jack was concerned, for the delay was to lead to a severing of our association. But if we were to make the Atlantic crossing, it had become essential to replace the heretic. There was no point in embarking on such an expedition without everything possible in our favour. Not only had our inflatable dinghy carried us more than a thousand miles in the Mediterranean, but it had been in service for three years before that. I knew our patron had ordered a twin, and I was determined to have the use of it. I got to Paris the same day, only to find the atmosphere even more frigid than during my previous visit. No one was prepared to put up another penny. In a long session with our patron, I gave him an account of our initial findings and enumerated all the reasons why it was essential to continue. At the end of our interview, he opened his arms to me and said, whether you go on without me or not, I will help you all I can. He gave orders that the new boat was to be delivered to me. The expedition was to continue after all. We agreed to dine together, but in the meantime, 
Something went wrong. He had changed his mind again. I was never able to discover why, and now he refused to let me have the boat. Moreover, he did everything in his power to dissuade us from going on. As a concession, I managed to get him to agree to accompany back to Tangier, where I was sure Jack would be able to convince him. Before we left, we had several conversations with experts and engineers, whose interest in our preliminary results ought to have been sufficient persuasion in itself. But as far as I could make out, our sponsor was now very much more interested in discovering whether it would be possible for castaways to use a patent vaporizer or a battery-driven distilling apparatus. There was even a motor worked by a piece of cord which ran round the boat. As all I wanted to do was to prove that it was possible to live at sea without food or patent appliances of any sort, it became more and more evident that we no longer shared the same ideal. In the end, I got the new dinghy direct from the makers myself and flew back to Tangier with it. Our patron was with me, and on our arrival he had a long conversation with Jack. The pair of us had to listen to a long disquisition based on the official theory that an inflatable dinghy would never hold together longer than ten days at sea. We were the wrong people to tell that to, and Jack became very angry. This seemed to be the turning point, and I thought our patron would come around again. He suggested buying us a radio receiver so that we'd always know the exact time at which to take our position. Uh, they're pretty expensive, I told him. How much? Here in Tangier, about 50 or 60 pounds. And in France, about twice as much. I'll buy you one. We went to the dealer. Our patron paid the bill and had it made out to Dr. Bombard, Museum of Oceanography, Monaco. The next day he left, taking the radio with him. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.